Hey there, Cross Connection. Pastor Jason here. Miles was generous enough to allow me to open up the series that we're going to be doing on the book of Esther. So today we're going to be in Esther chapter one. So if you have your Bible, turn to Esther chapter one. There is some background information that we need to look at before we dive into the book of Esther. Some things that'll help us to uh, maybe see or understand things a little more clearly. First of all, Esther was almost not even in the Bible. The book of Esther was not almost not in the Bible because there was no mention of God, there's no mention of prayer, and there's no mention of worship or the Torah anywhere in the book of Esther. Um, there's no New Testament author that quotes the book of Esther. So it was kind of tenuous on whether or not it would make it into the canon of scripture. But thankfully it is, and we can be confident in that, so we're going to go ahead and go through the book of Esther here. The book of Esther takes place between 483 and 473 BC. Um, this is during the, uh, the reign of Xerxes. As it says in scripture, it calls him Ahasuerus. And that is a different translation of the name Xerxes. So Ahasuerus, as we go forward, equals Xerxes, just if you're trying to keep up historically. Um, one thing to notice also in Esther, a thing that should like, make your uh, spiritual antenna vibrate a little bit, is the mention of banquets. Banquets, the word, the Hebrew word for banquets is mentioned 20 times alone in the book of Esther and only 24 times in the rest of the Bible. So that should show us that it's a little bit significant as we go through there. Um, now, what is the book of Esther's place in the timeline of the Jews? Because this is important. Um, earlier than this, Cyrus the Great has defeated the Babylonian Empire. That was prophesied in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. Um, Cyrus has freed the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. And about 50,000 of them had already left by 583 BC. This is talked about in Ezra. Um, this is just prior, somewhere just prior to the beginning of the story that we're going to find in Esther here. So some of the Jews are back in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple. Darius also reinforces the decree of Cyrus later on that the Jews would be allowed to rebuild the temple. Um, the temple was finished in about 516. Um, so Ezra here leads a second band of Jews returning to Jerusalem in 548. Uh, Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the city also later on. During this whole period, God uses the events in Esther to protect the Jews who had not returned to Israel when it was available to them. They'd chosen to stay in the other provinces of the Persian Empire. Um, they'd chosen to remain in the land of their captivity despite the opportunity to return to the promised land of their fathers. This indicates that we're probably dealing with more ethnically Jewish people than religiously Jewish people. Um, they've decided to remain in captivity, as it were, as free men, rather than return to the land that God has called them to inhabit. So keep that in mind also as we go forward. Now, the other thing that we need to remember is that God has an overarching plan through all of this. It starts in the Garden of Eden, it leads to the cross, and looks forward towards the time where Jesus is on the throne ruling and reigning and we are all with him there in heaven. All of history is part of this story. Um, and sometimes when we look at this, we can feel kind of insignificant. After all, in the span of human history, who am I? Who is Ahasuerus or Vashti or Esther? All of us occupy such a tiny portion of the story, but be encouraged. You may feel insignificant historically, but look instead at the value placed on you by the cross. 
you and I and Ahasuerus and Vashti and Esther, we were all deemed worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross so that we could be redeemed and given the opportunity to have a right relationship with God. So we can see that the book of Esther occupies a strategic place in history. It's a time when God is rebuilding the temple, the city, and he's using Esther to protect his people who were still outside the promised land. We can see the progression from here to the arrival of Jesus and the destruction of the temple after the crucifixion. We can identify this on the timeline of God's plan. We have the advantage of the outside perspective as we look at this. But remember, as we move through Esther, and indeed as we move through our own lives, to those living out the story, like Esther, like Mordecai, like Ahasuerus, like Vashti, to them, it's just like any other day, like any Tuesday, where people are walking along unaware of the part that they're playing in the larger story that God is writing. So we need to keep all of these things in mind as we move through Esther. As we get into the text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we open your word today, we seek, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us guidance, Lord, that you would help us to, uh, to engage with the text, Lord, in a way that leads us closer to you. So, Father God, help us to, to set aside our preconceived notions, help us to set aside our own opinions, Lord Jesus, and look to see what your word says. So, Father God, be glorified in us as we approach your word, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so the book of Esther starts out with these words. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. So we see that there is a, uh, there is a setting, there is a place. Um, we see Ahasuerus ruling most, at this point, most of the known world. Um, from Libya to the west, India, Kazakhstan in the east, from modern-day Romania in the north, all the way down to Sudan in the south. Um, Modern-day nations that were all are part of the Persian Empire include Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Bulgaria, Greece, India, Pakistan, Russia, Ukraine, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Pakistan, Syria, Turkey, Egypt, and Libya. It's a massive empire ruled by a king with great wealth and immense power all at his disposal. Verse 3 picks up and says, He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all of his officials and his staff, the armies of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. Now, remember, this is early on in his reign. This is like year three of his reign, and he's probably looking to establish his throne in the minds of his people. Not his father's throne, his throne. Also, Scholars think that it was this point in time where he was planning his unsuccessful attempt to conquer the Greeks. So part of this is for 180 days, he gathers from all of his provinces, all 127 of them, from Kush to India, brings them all in, and he's showing them the power of the empire because he's getting ready to head off and show that power as he overthrows the Greeks. That's his plan, that's what he's attempting to do. So you have all of these noble people from around the empire, all in Susa there, all at this massive feast and at this massive like display of power. And then verse five, at the end of this time, 
the king held a week-long banquet in the garden of the royal palace for all the people. There's that word again, banquet. From the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red field spar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Once again, he is displaying the wealth and the power of the Persian Empire as embodied in his palace as he walks around being the king, the one who wields this power. And in verse 7, it picks up, Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was in accordance to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. So you have a week-long banquet with an open bar and the royal decree, there are no restrictions. Basically, drink whatever you want to whatever quantity you want. It's all on the table. Now this, of course, sounds like a recipe for success, right? <laughs> uh, Vashti, at the same time, is holding a banquet for the women in the palace, which would have included, remember, all the female uh, wives, all of the, uh, the consorts, all the people that the heads of all these various provinces brought with them to Susa. Now note, this is a very male-dominated society. It is also very segregated by gender. The king had a harem of women, but only one had the position of queen. And we'll see as we go through at the book of Esther that women were treated very much more like possessions than people. Now, we need to remember as we go through this that God works through imperfect and often corrupt tools and that customs differ in different times and in different places. Even a king like Ahasuerus is used by God. This is not God approving of Ahasuerus as a man or as a king, but a sovereign God using people and the events of history to continue to, continue to further his plan. In verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, which kind of gives us an indication of how the days have been going. Seventh day, he's feeling good from the wine. Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and to the officials because she was very beautiful. See, this is the setup for the big conflict that's coming in this chapter. This is where a lot of speculation is as to what the request was and why it elicited, why it elicited the response that it did from Queen Vashti. Um, some scholars think the request was to appear in an inappropriate or immodest fashion, but like many events, most of the events in the book of Esther, we don't have the inside information that we would like to have. We don't know motivations here. We don't know specifically why she refused the request. We just know that, that she was going to. So what we do know is that the king, while feeling good from the wine, according to scripture, ordered her to come and wanted to show her off to the people and the officials. Clearly her value to the king was in how she looked and he wanted to display her 
much like he was displaying his wealth and his power in the fortress at this feast. So she becomes nothing more than a symbol of his power and of his wealth, because here it is, his beautiful queen. But verse 12, everything takes a hard shift in this story. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. She refuses to show up. Now, once again, we don't have the benefit of knowing her thoughts or her reasons. We can speculate, but all that is, is speculation. What we do know is she received a royal decree, delivered in a royal manner by royal messengers, and she refused to comply with that. Was she, right, was she right or wrong to refuse this order? Was this a courageous stand based on a clear violation of her morals? Or was this a petulant refusal because she was tired or drunk herself? We just don't know. When reading scripture where we aren't given the information, we have to be careful not to inject our own interpretation. We don't have enough information to decide if she was right or if she was wrong. So we need to be careful not to assign motives and in our own mind, lend meaning or direction where scripture is silent. What we do know is that she said no and the king is furious and his anger is burning inside him and his response changes the course of an empire. In verse 13, it says, The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and in justice. This leads us to a biblical principle. Who you seek advice from will very often determine the quality of the advice you receive. If you're looking for financial advice, don't go to someone with a terrible track record with their money. If you're seeking medical advice, try a doctor. If you check Google with your symptoms, you're likely gonna find out that you're going to die. I had this when I was uh, stung, stung by a stingray last summer. And as I was Googling, you know, dealing with a stingray bite, one of the first things was, you're gonna die. Now, the lifeguards were involved and they were not acting like this was possibly fatal. So I had to recheck my sources and recheck exactly what I Googled and I found out, yeah, no, I'm not gonna die. Um, so you gotta be careful with who you consult with for advice because you're gonna get advice determined by who you consult. So if you check uh, with Google, you're probably gonna die if you list some of your symptoms. You know, they all kind of lead there. In legal matters, check with a lawyer, not with a baker. A baker bakes, a lawyer handles the law. We need to make sure that we check from the right sources to determine what it is we're trying to find out. Now, one caution though, when you are seeking advice, make sure you're not just looking for someone to corroborate your own opinion. If you have checked with several experts and none of them agree with you, be very careful going in your own direction. So here the king consults wise men who understood the times. We also see that it was a habit that the king would confer with experts in law and justice. So in this, he's probably showing some wisdom here, like, uh, let's check this out, guys. And in verse 15, the king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Now notice the question, what should be done with Vashti, not why had she done what she did? The assumption of the one in power is that a refusal to obey is synonymous here with guilt. She's clearly guilty because she didn't do what I wanted. 
Now, once again, we need to note that we don't have the information to decide if she was a courageous hero standing up for her rights or if she was defying the king for more selfish reasons. See, we generally stick up for the underdog and side against those that are in power, and this will color our interpretation of events that we see in Esther, but we need to be conscious of that and make sure we are not leading the text and thereby drawing false conclusions. What we do see is that it is seen by the king as a serious problem, worthy of bringing in his council of experts in law and justice. One of them speaks up here in verse 16 and says, Memukan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all of the officials and people who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. Their response is, if we don't nip this in the bud, it will spread everywhere. Now to us, this can seem kind of laughable, like really, like how is this gonna be a danger to the empire of the Medes and the Persians? You have one lady who said no to her husband. But remember, all the noble women were at Vashti's banquet and they all likely witnessed the request and the refusal. So here we see one woman's refusal to comply has the potential in the eyes of the king's experts, experts no less, to derail the entire kingdom. This is the amazing power that an example of one person has. Now, we don't know why she's doing this. We don't get that information. We just know that she is. And we know that this, in the eyes of the experts, is considered a viable threat to the entire empire of the Medes and the Persians. And in verse 19, he says, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter the king Ahasuerus' presence and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. So in order to stave off the... Uh, the danger that they see from Vashti's example to the women of the kingdom, Vashti is barred from ever coming into the king's presence again and her royal position is given to someone else. Her punishment is meant to be an example to any that would rebel against their husbands. Now, what does this mean for Vashti? Her influence and her power came from her proximity to the king. She wasn't queen because of herself. She was queen because he chose her and put her there. So by barring her from ever being in his presence again, her power and her prestige and her influence, they're gone. The thing that we need to remember is that sometimes the squeaky wheel gets replaced. People are passionate. We are passionate about many things. And often we'll take stands and make bold declarations about the things that we're passionate about. But as a Christian, we need to be careful that the stands we take are the stands that Jesus took. It's easy to justify in our own minds that this issue or this cause is biblical because whatever reasons we come up with. And often we proof text or we twist a verse or two to make our cause just in our own mind. We need to remember 
that the scriptures tell us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked, who can know it? As Christians, we need to step back from our desires and our rights and examine them and test them against the plumb line of scripture. From veggie tales to movies to books, Vashti the Queen is often cast as the righteous heroine standing up against an overbearing king. But does scripture support this view? Or is it the case that we like David and Goliath aspect of the story and we've built a narrative that is just not supported? We don't know. We don't know why she did it and we don't know her motivation. So we are left with this question as we look at our own lives in the light of this. How do we go about being faithful servants when we're serving unfaithful masters? Are we always called to resist any authority that we feel is unjust? Are there times when God uses unjust masters to further his will and his plan? Think of Joseph and of Daniel. They're both Old Testament examples of God's people serving ungodly masters while in exile because of their people's rebellion against God. The people rebelled against God and that sets the stage for both Joseph and Daniel to serve men who were not godly men, but to serve them faithfully and rise to positions of power and influence because they served faithfully. We can also look at the New Testament passages of Titus chapter three, verse one, where it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. First Peter chapter two, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people or first, first Peter chapter two, verse 18, where it says servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So that paints a picture for us. But then we need to balance these with other scriptures like Acts chapter 14, verse nine, where it says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had brought, this is Acts chapter 5, 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You also have the example in the Old Testament of Jer, who soothed the king to sleep and then drove a tent bag through his head. So that would be, you know, resistance to authority. So we see also that Daniel, in the example of Daniel, he served faithfully until the decree that no one could pray to anyone other than Darius. And we see this in Daniel chapter six, verse three. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above all the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. We see Daniel is serving because of the excellent spirit within him. He's serving because God is working through him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the entire realm. Verse four, so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So we see Daniel being set up to disobey the king because he's following God. So how do we choose what issues that we're gonna stand up to authority on? 
What, what hill do we choose to die on? Well, we have to look at the hill that Jesus died on and line our values up with his, not the other way around. It's very easy to take our values and say, well, this is what God wants, but it's the way that we have to look at this, the better way, the only way as a Christian is to look at his will, his desires, what he did and his revealed word and line ourselves up with that. See, <laughs> this is the blessed messiness of the Christian walk. In seeking to follow Jesus, we often look more like a tightrope walker balancing between submission to authorities on one side and submission to God on the other than somebody who's like just casually walking down this path. We have us wobbling on the wire, swaying from side to side, and occasionally failing and falling off the wire. But thankfully, we have the net of grace to catch us when we mess up. We need to understand though, that each of our decisions come with consequences. For Vashti here, it was expulsion from the king's presence, and she likely lived out the remainder of her days in obscurity in a part of the harem reserved for those who were not in the king's favor. So verse 21, back in Esther chapter one, the king and his counselors approved of the proposal and he followed Memucan's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So in response to what Vashti did, they send this decree out and the decree goes out to every one of the 127 provinces in each place's language, all saying the same thing. Every man should be the master of his own house and his wife had better listen. The decree goes out, but see now the stage is set for Esther and Mordecai as the story continues to unfold. We can see the unseen hands of God working his plan through the lives of the people in the story of Esther. It's very often harder for us to see God's hands working in our own lives. But remember, take comfort and have confidence that God is indeed writing your part in his story, even as we speak. Follow his lead and realize that while your part may seem insignificant on any given Tuesday, the value of your part is immeasurable because God set your value at the cross of Jesus Christ. And who knows? Maybe your decision on any, other, on any given Tuesday will change the course of an empire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, head out here from Esther, as we prepare to, to get into uh, the larger story presented in the book of Esther, Lord, I pray that you would help us to navigate what it means to be those who follow you. Lord, to be those who seek to honor you and honor the authorities that are placed over us. And sometimes, Lord, those things clash horribly. Help us to walk this tightrope wisely and effectively and glorify you as we do it. Father God, as we head through our week, help us to not see any of the things that we do as insignificant. Help us to see them all, Lord, as an act of worship to you. And help us to set our priorities and make our decisions with that in mind. Thank you, Lord God, for the examples you give us in your word. Thank you for the, the concepts and the precepts and all the things you lay out for us, Jesus. Most of all, thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. And thank you for the grace that it buys us so that we can occasionally fail. As we sometimes seem to do over and over, Lord. 
Yet you are good and you are full of grace and your mercy endures forever. Thank you, Jesus. And pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, guys. So next week, Pastor Mark's going to pick up chapter two in Esther. Hope to see you guys there. God bless you. Have a great day.